Revealing Voices is a mental health podcast that is faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. Host Tony Roberts and guest hosts with lived experience take you on a journey of revealing voices, working for justice, crying out for healing, speaking the truth in love, and expressing beauty in art. I'm Kevin Early Bird Early, technical producer and sound mixer, and I want to welcome you to Revealing Voices. Hello, I'm Tony Roberts, here with Revealing Voices, Season 4, and my guest co-host for this series is... Laura Pollyano. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for joining us for this series. And this series is about advocacy. We are looking at advocacy from a number of different personal and perspectives. Today, we have with us both family member perspective, but also more officially in the role at Treatment Advocacy Center that she will discuss. And this is Kathy Day. Kathy, you want to say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, Tony. Hi, Laura. I am, first of all, so honored by you to have been asked to participate in this podcast. It means a lot to me that you did this, and I'm hoping I can give information that will be helpful to your listeners. We're going to have a great discussion. My background is that I have a family member who has severe schizophrenia. He's been ill for about 12 years, and we've been through probably almost every facet of the system, from mental health care to brief homelessness to hospital errors that were, you know, with medication that were just horrible. So we've seen a lot of really bad treatment. And we've also seen a lot of really good. Uh, unfortunately, the bad seems to outweigh the good, but the good is really, really good. So we've been going through this for 12 years. And right now he's very stable. So that's, that's a good thing. So there can be some hope and we'll talk about hope. Well, absolutely. Hope is the one thing I think that no one can take away from you. That's your choice to continue hoping. And when I don't have anything else, I have hope. The Treatment Advocacy Center is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to eliminating barriers to the timely and effective treatment of severe mental illness by promoting laws, policies, and practices for the delivery of psychiatric care and supporting the development of innovative treatments for and research into the causes of severe and persistent psychiatric illnesses, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. What I do for the Treatment Advocacy Center is uh, my role is senior family liaison. In that role, I field calls and uh, emails from families across the country who are struggling to find help for their loved ones. But I, I basically, I, I provide resources and information that can help them navigate the system of mental health care. And it is just amazing because so many things are similar across the country. The uh, lack of access to treatment, the incarceration of mentally ill, et cetera. I mean, it's very similar everywhere. So I've learned a lot in my time that I can put this information out there for others. And frankly, I'm learning a lot from them as well. So in a nutshell, that's basically what my role is. Now, you've mentioned the assistant outpatient treatment. Could you tell us more about what that is? Sure. Assisted outpatient treatment, AOT, is the practice of providing community-based mental health treatment under civil court commitment as a means of, one, motivating an adult with mental illness who struggles with voluntary treatment adherence to engage fully with their treatment plan, 
and two, focusing the attention of treatment providers on the need to work diligently to keep the person engaged in effective treatment. What do you see advocacy involve and what first drew you into advocacy? You know, my family member's illness is what first drew me into advocacy. I didn't know much about schizophrenia and I didn't actually, looking back, I didn't know anything about schizophrenia. So I was always seeking out information and trying to learn everything I could. And I found DJ Jaffe's Facebook group and got involved there. And I learned so much and I started meeting people from across the country, only on social media. And we became a really good team of advocates. Most of us had never met in person. We learned from each other and helped so many people within our group. Even we were able to help, you know, each other that were in the group, as well as trying to change laws to help everyone living this life with severe mental illness. So that brought me into advocacy Mm. just because I, I met a group of people that I, I clicked with because Nobody else in my, in my realm knew anything about schizophrenia. So meeting my tribe, I think, is what really drew me into advocacy. Kathy, when your loved one is affected by such a severe and serious mental illness that we know has no cure, that we know has problematic treatments, and that we really have to, as another advocate that we know says bring to bear a system of luck and heroics to get them some stability. Don't you think that really almost everyone has to become an advocate to help their loved one get better? I do. I agree with that. Many people can't do that. They they instead let go for their own reasons. But if you truly want to fight hard and you have the wherewithal to do that, you, you must become an advocate on some level. You can be just an advocate for your loved one to make sure that they do get the treatment they need, or you can do legislative and policy advocacy. So you can change the, things on a, a broader perspective. But in some way, shape or form, at least in the beginning, once you learn a little more and overcome the shock of your child being ill, I think you have to start advocating just with that loved one and then take a bigger look at whatever else you can do. And it doesn't mean you have to go march at Congress. It doesn't mean you have to go talk to legislators. You can talk to just somebody in the grocery store. And that's a way of advocating because you're humanizing mental illness and explaining that. So yeah, I think everybody should do advocacy in their own way. And yet I don't fault those who can't do that for whatever reason. Right. I agree with you. What have been some of your greatest frustrations and your uh, biggest celebration? Gosh, too numerous to name right there. Some of the biggest frustrations were when I attempted to get the proper care for my loved one in in our area here, Sacramento County in California, the law enforcement officers are our first line. So I would have to call police to get my very sick loved one into a hospital, which is completely ridiculous that you should have to do that. That's not police's job. And then they show up and they have their preconceived notion about what should be done. And more often than not, they would refuse to take him in for treatment. And so that's definitely probably the number one frustration. Not too far away from that is the lack of cooperation from facilities and providers with family members. I feel like we're shut out so many times, yet we're the ones with the history about our loved one. If we share that history with the providers, they can provide better treatment. 
but they shut us out instead, most of them. And there have been several that have been really good and actually chose to communicate with me, even if there wasn't a release of information on board. And, and that's a lot of the, the good part about it. You know, that's kind of a celebration when I find that one in a million person who actually gets it and involves me in treatment and respects my loved one and respects me. So that's a good thing right there. You know, the ignorance that's out there, there's so much ignorance. I don't call it stigma. It's a lot of ignorance and discrimination. That's really difficult. Interestingly, though, we haven't really experienced that very much because my family member lacks insight. He has a condition known as anosognosia where he doesn't understand that he's ill. So he doesn't perceive any negative attitudes toward him as a stigma. So in, in a way, I guess that's a benefit that he's unable to, to perceive that. It's probably the only benefit of anosognosia, but that's what it is. As far as our biggest celebrations, a few years ago, 2019, actually, I had been trying to get him on an LPS conservatorship in California. That gives the conservator the power to make decisions for the conservatee, including requiring that they can be placed in a locked facility or a board and care home. It's the, the conservator's choice to do that. I had been trying to get that for my loved one for about three years. And finally in 2019, he was in a psychiatric hospital. The doctor agreed with me and filed the paperwork with the county to start that process. I asked to be his conservator because I do know his history and I, I knew that that would be helpful. And that was granted. I am still his conservator to this day. And that was absolutely an achievement. That was a huge celebration because now they basically have to listen to my story because I was court ordered to be his conservator. So, so that's definitely a celebration. Another celebration is where he is right now. He was in an unlocked facility for a little over a year. He was not, he didn't have to stay in there, right? Unlocked. So he went down the street and found some kids in the park doing meth. He jumped in there and decided he was going to do that. Now he did it a total of three times in two weeks. And then again, going back to the power of, a, of the conservator, I pulled him from that facility and moved him temporarily to what's called a PUF or a, a short-term crisis center. Typically in those crisis centers, a person stays five to seven days, maybe. And that's about it. The point by putting in there is I needed to move him to a long-term locked facility called a mental health rehabilitation center in California, at least. And they don't have any, many contracted with Sacramento County. So I had to get creative and I found a place that was wonderful in Merced County in California. Our county didn't contract with them, but somehow I persuaded them to do so. That's so, amazing. I just had right. have to interrupt you because that's yeah. amazing that your skill in advocacy influenced the county to contract with the facility that they didn't contract with so that your, your loved one could have long-term care and get it paid for. That's really incredible. I commend you on that. Thank you. And, and it is. And it's, it's partly my advocacy, but also I have a sales background. So I used to, <laughs> right? so I used a lot of the persuasive sales skills that I had in the past, like pointing out like this particular facility has some forensic beds to take people straight from jail. Those yeah. are hard to find around here. So there's a, a shortage of beds for inmates who need, truly need psychiatric treatment. So that was my, my first thing to persuade them to do and my, my rationale that they needed to do this. The second thing was that the facility I asked for them to contract with is more expensive than every other facility, but it also wow. provides the best care, at least in California, if not the country. 
And so it's more expensive. It's worth it. So I explained to the, the county personnel that if you invest the money now, yes, it's more expensive, but invest the money now, then your return on that investment is much better. You'll reduce the hospitalization, the homelessness, everything else, and you'll improve his quality of life. So you can't put a price tag on that. You need to invest ahead of time. And so those, those that's, two things. That's amazing. Yeah. You're, you're really fortunate that they listened to you. We all know, we hear the stories over and over. People get turned away, turned away. Every um, official, it seems, who has the power to do something better for the patient who needs care seems to say no. But you right. not only got him in there, you mm-hmm. got contracted and paid for by that county. So Kathy, tell us how your loved one is doing now. Oh my gosh. Finally, for the first time, he is doing so much better at this time. And I'm not really even sure why it's happening. I'm just glad it's happening. Of all the facilities he's been in and all the outpatient treatment providers he's had, none of them have been able to engage him in doing group treatment. He He's like, you know, they're, they're boring. I don't want to go. And honestly, I don't think I'd want to go because most of the groups are about mindfulness or substance abuse. He doesn't think he's got a drug problem either or about DBT or CBT. He still doesn't think he's mentally ill. So, you know, those don't appeal to him. This facility has fun things to offer and he's engaging them for the first time in 12 years. He's actually looking forward to groups and engaging them and has takeaways from them which is just so amazing that he gets to do that. Yesterday, he called me and said that program leader said, you know, gave him some homework after a group. I'm like, really? Homework? He said, yeah. I said, did you do it yet? Oh, yeah, I did it right away. And I wow. said, really? I know. I said, did you like doing it? He said, I did. Can I go to school? I want to go to college. Oh, my wow. gosh. That was wonderful to hear. So I explained you know- to him. Yeah. Well, he's participating. He's participating in his own care for the first time. Huge. Instead of being at other directed, it's starting to become self-directed um, in a way. That's a major, major improvement, I'm sure. It really is. And I learned from a psychiatrist that I worked with a long time ago, long time ago. And she said that people with psychosis have so much going on in the background that you need to find a way to draw them out to the foreground. And that made a lot, mm. lot of sense to me. And that's what these groups are doing with him. He was stuck with the voices. Now he has two voices left. And they're, they're mm. both very kind to him because he's active in the foreground. Mm-hmm. And it gets him out of his, his head. That's so it's wonderful. Huge. Yeah, wonderful the facility, news. Thank you. The next mm. place he goes is supposed to have that type of group mm. method too. They have art group, they have music group, and they have a drama group. Who would, who oh, wow. Found, right? Yeah. Yeah, music, art, drama, everything that people who aren't sick use to fill their soul. (laughs) And just because they're sick doesn't mean they don't have those needs. They do. And and a need to express it. Oh, I'm so happy about that. So what I do at Treatment Advocacy Center is I am the senior family liaison. My job is to field calls and emails from people around the country who are distressed because their loved ones are having challenges, can't get treatment, they're in jail, whatever's happening. And then we focus on people with severe mental illness, which we define as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression. And they have to be adults too. Although I've gotten some calls 
from people whose children were, were excuse me, whose loved ones were children or adolescents. And my thing that I stick to all the time is I'm not going to send somebody away without at least one suggestion. So even if it's somebody like that, I had another client today, her loved one has alcoholism, but no co-occurring diagnosed mental illness. I'm helping her with, with getting resources for alcoholism. So we just provide this. And, and I think that I've heard from at least one person in probably every state in the U.S., including Hawaii and territories like San Juan. San, is that what it's called? San Juan? <laughs> I know. I've the Virgin sent, Islands. Yeah. I was like, oh. I know I've sent you um, quite a few customers yes. from clients. my clients, from my support group who really are just in a near crisis, needing some answers. And we provide support in the support group, but we can't always provide resources. So I'm so glad to know you and have a personable, dedicated person to send them to, to help them figure out what do I do next? What can I actually do with the issue we're facing? And exactly. And that's, that's what I do try to provide. And I wish there was some way to just purge all that knowledge in, for, from my brain. And because I, I'm like a sponge when I, in, when I learn something about different states, different people, different situation, I tend to retain it. So I'm trying to put that on, on paper a lot more lately, but it does help me to be able to come up with sometimes creative ideas for people who are going through crisis. It's not necessarily immediate crisis like right now, but everybody who is caring for someone with a serious mental illness, we're constantly in crisis in one way or another. Even if that crisis is like right now, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop about my loved one who's in this hospital because that I always worry about that. Like something could happen. Staff could change and it can always be something different. But, Mm. you know, I just feel like my experience in the last 12 years and plus being a part of your Facebook support group has been really helpful in learning how things are across the country. For instance, in um, usually ask someone the county and state that their loved one is in so that I can get direct local resources. I've had to learn things like Louisiana doesn't have counties, they have parishes. So right. I need to right. I need to learn how to talk the language of each of the people that I'm in touch with to build that partly to build trust, but also to show respect that I understand where they're coming from and what it is in that's happening in their state. And then I'm familiar with that. And if I'm not familiar, now, honestly, I tell people a lot of times that my job is truly just a professional Googler. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just Google the information, but I have to know what to Google. And that's where the, the um, history has come, has helped me a lot, you know, because they don't call me if they know what to Google because everybody can Google. Right, right. But knowing um, I, how, yeah. I told a friend last week that, before they gave me a child with schizophrenia, about five years prior to that, they should have started educating me on schizophrenia. And then maybe by the time my son became ill, I would have had even an inkling of what was ahead of us, what we were facing, and some of the things that I needed to know how to do instead of getting a sick child, being in crisis, and trying to learn it all. So you are really really providing a valuable service where people can lean on all the experience you've gained when they're just stuck and and don't know what else to do. Thank you. That's what I try to do. And like I said earlier, I don't want to ever just 
tell someone, I don't have any answers for you. Came close to that once, but then I basically heard my empathy and please contact it in any time you want, contact me. So at least Aww. that was the one thing I could give them is just be there for them. So what gives you hope? What gives me hope? You know, sometimes there is no hope. At least that's what people say. I've given up. There's no hope. It's never going to change. The way I look at it, nobody can take hope away from you. You you own hope. If you let that hope go, then you can bring it back too. I mean, I've done that a few times, just given up hope. And then the next day I go, nope, I'm still going to keep fighting. But the things that give me hope are, first of all, when I joined the Treatment Advocacy Center, probably about half of our staff are 30 and younger. And Nice. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that made yeah. me feel like, okay, good. We've got somebody to carry this forward as the rest of us age. We've got young people involved in this. And, and that's amazing. I am also um, hopeful that there is currently so much interest in mental illness. A lot of that has to do with COVID. So I guess something good came out of it. But and, and in that case, in many cases, it's about depression and anxiety and all of that, which definitely deserves to be acknowledged and treated. But it's also almost leveled that playing field so people who have those mental illnesses may be a little more understanding about someone with a psychotic illness and so there just seems to be a lot more understanding and discussion and um, positive changes in the laws that we are often a part of but we're not always it was started by governor newsom and it's his brainchild and his focus and one of the things he said is he's tired of seeing mentally ill people on the streets and wow. people just stepping over them. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what we do. We step over our brothers on the street right. on the way to our fun thing. And every single one of those people that got sick is someone's husband, someone's dad, someone's child, uh-huh. and sibling. Um, sibling. And they're our brothers. They're human. They have Absolutely. needs. They deserve a chance at health and a happy, meaningful life. One more thing. None of them ever ask for the illness. And that's what I think the general public forgets. They assume that people must have done something to be that sick. That's not true. It just hits. Anyway, sorry. I just wanted to get that point in. No, that's a, that's a really, really important point. I want to ask you something about how we talk about serious mental illnesses. You know, a lot of advocates are starting to just reject the term mental illness and use the term brain illness, brain disorders, which I like. I think it's going to take a long, long time to change people's understanding so that if I do say brain disorders, someone equates it with mental illness and not something else like Alzheimer's. But language, don't you think language matters? And and how can it make a difference cleaning up your language? What do you think? think? I think it matters. Um, I don't think it's the most important thing to worry about. Too often I hear people focused on, you know, what are we going to call this? What are, you know, we have people who have mental illnesses sometimes, or they used to be called consumers. Why? Because consumers usually mean someone who consumes like purchasing that sort of, we have a consumer affairs department, but it's not about people with mental illness. So they went away from that. Now they call them peers, you know, so they, they slap a word on it that, they think is going to make it all better. It's it's like what Shakespeare, Shakespeare, I think said it, a rose is a rose or rose by any other name is yes. still a rose. Mm-hmm. So no matter what you call it, it's still a person with an illness. 
they change the language in an attempt to reduce the stigma. If I say brain patient or mental patient, everyone goes, ew. But if I say consumer, it kind of disguises what that is. Or peer, it kind of disguises what that illness is, what the issue is, and alleviates for the person experiencing it, it alleviates some stigma that they might feel. The first time someone called my son a consumer, I said he is not buying a car. He has 10 doctors and he is a patient. And I was so offended and not offended personally, but more like offended on his behalf and scared (laughs) that people were going to water down this disaster. But what do you think of maybe the initiative to change the name schizophrenia? Schizophrenia really means split mind. And a lot of people still think that schizophrenia means multiple personalities when it doesn't. But what do you think of that? Will that help? Will that help improve the public image of this really awful disease if we name it something else? You know, I try to look at a bigger picture than that. Ultimately, the way to reduce the stigma and to change people's attitudes is to provide effective treatment for the people, whether they identify as a person with brain illness or mental illness or behavioral health issues, my least favorite term, you know, the only way to fully eradicate it is just to treat those people. We're not just going to educate people. We don't have to just educate people. We have to treat them. I agree with you so much on that. If you want to reduce stigma, get better treatment and get it to people. Yeah, and and the examples of people that you see who are sick will improve because Mm -hmm. their lives are improving. And then you won't have such a dire view of these poor people, many of whom, like you said, we're stepping over. They're in the streets or they're standing on a corner yelling at something we can't see. Yes. And, and if we provided that person with treatment, they're maybe going to be on that corner walking around to go to their job with their briefcase in their suit. Who knows? Right. You know? right. So that eliminates the stigma right there. I do think that thought disorders and psychotic disorders need to be separated from other types of mental illness. I because, do too. Yeah. And because that, I think, is what also causes a lot of the stigma. We, we run into challenges often when we try to, to implement new laws that are either, you know, we're increasing beds for involuntary treatment and those people who don't have psychotic disorders, or maybe who do, who have been able to achieve some sort of recovery and have never had issues to where they lack insight and had to be forced into a hospital. They are fighting against very strongly against people like Zach and at least and my family member who truly needed involuntary in, inpatient care. And the, the argument I hear often is that, well, if you lock them up, you're going to lock me up. You're going to lock this whole group up. Right. And what, what they fail to understand is they don't meet that criteria to be locked up. And it's very narrow and specific on who can be, quote unquote, locked up. They're right. actually receiving treatment in a treatment facility. So it's, and we don't say the same thing about our loved ones who have Alzheimer's or de- dementia. They're, right. they're, they're locked up. They can't leave their facilities. They have right. no understanding. And yet there's no one out there yelling and, and trying to prevent them from getting care. 
Mm-hmm. They, the HIPAA issues are mostly non-existent there because everyone realizes that someone with dementia doesn't have the capacity to um, direct their own care, that family needs to be involved. But yet we don't get that with younger people or middle-aged people who have the other kind of brain illnesses. Capacity, you said the key word, lacking, lacking capacity. When someone lacks capacity in any other kind of brain injury, brain ailment, Parkinson's, dementia, um, stroke patients, we just assume they need family involvement, they need treatment, they need care, we support them. But over in serious psychiatric brain disorders, it's completely the opposite. The incapacitated person is encouraged to make all their own decisions, even when those decisions lead them to the gutter or the morgue. Right. Oh, they have the right to do that. You know, they have the right to refuse treatment. They have the right to go in and out of, of ERs with other types of illnesses because no one will actually get the actual, the real treatment that they do need. So that becomes a, a financial burden, if you will, on society when we could just treat them first and avoid the burden. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you our signature question. And uh, this pertains, but uh, can go in whatever direction subjectively you are led, but what does healing mean to you? You know, Tony, that is a really good question. I do struggle with the word recovery, but healing sounds much better because it it sounds much more like an illness that you heal from. Whereas to me, recovery sounds like addiction. You recover from your addiction. And I guess it's true that you would recover from a heart attack but it's completely different as well. Different type of recovery. You still have limitations if you've had a heart attack. And that's, you know, that's similar also to someone with schizophrenia or another thought disorder. And they're, they're trying to do everything they can, if they can, if they have lack of insight, anosognosia, then they can't even get through that very well um, to get to a point of quote unquote recovery. So I do like healing better. And I'd say that healing specifically for my family member, healing would look like being able to take care of himself, being able to go back to school, being able to have a social life and perhaps a job. I don't, I don't think he needs to have a big full-time, really difficult job, but something that he would enjoy doing and at his own speed too. Even if he still never understands that he has schizophrenia, if he never gains that insight, I think it's still important for him to have certain little milestones that he hits to the point that he can be stable. And he, he may never be, a, you know, he may never have the spirits gone completely. And that's fine as long as he can still manage his life on his own. Maybe not fully, because I'd miss him if he were out there on his own. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. But yeah, I want him to have the freedom. So I guess in a nutshell, healing means freedom. And that's not to go back to where freedom means you shouldn't be involuntary treated. I think right. it's the, the involuntary treatment that brings about the healing. Yep. So I guess that's, that's the, the note I'll end up. I'm sorry, Tony. Beautiful response. Thank you. Yes. Kathy, I'm so happy to know you personally. Same and here. I know when we met online, 
years ago was a love connection. And (laughs) and we've been good pals ever since. But I learn so much from you, even in our little discussions that we have. um, You always open my eyes. And I appreciate that because sometimes they need it. And (laughs) um, no, truly. And you're really, really uh, well-educated, well-spoken on this very dedicated. And um, I know that your loved one is going to have a lot of success one day. And it really, it's going to be attributed to you and how hard you've worked for him to get, you know, get what he needs to actually have a full, meaningful life that he wants to live, that he enjoys. Wow. Thank you. You got me like over here I know. Well, we'll all cry for a second and then we'll wrap it up. Right. Well, and I have to say too, Laura, that um, I respect so much that you've done everything that you do. And I do learn from you too. Um, <laughs> and, and your strength, especially after you lost sack, you still yeah. put yourself out there and try to help other people. And I have so much respect for that. So, and I count myself as being very honored to be a friend of yours. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you. I always tell people, and I'm sure you agree with this, you know, it's really painful if you have a child or a loved one that struggles so bad with a, just a disease like schizophrenia, bipolar with psychosis or um, major depressive disorder, you know, it's really heartbreaking for you. So, and when I lost Zach, I said to myself, do I just go off and lick my wounds or do I continue in the fray? Right. And I really, I meditated on this question. Nice. What do I do with this? And someone came to me for help and I helped them and I felt slightly less miserable, like a smidge. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, helping others is a very, very good way to feel slightly less horrible. (laughs) And that's how I like to put it because you're not gonna, you'll never not feel pain, pain at what your loved one is suffering. And no matter who that loved one is, it'll always be painful to you. But um, you can really alleviate a lot of that pain by helping someone else. And I really know that the families that come to you are very fortunate to get connected with you. Do you want to tell us how someone can reach you at TAC? First, let me back up one second because I want to say something about what you were saying. And I'm going to horribly misquote this, but Eleanor Roosevelt once said something about, it's in my service to others that I find my own healing. And what you just said right there, it just, that you epitomize that really. Oh, thanks. But (laughs) yeah, um, I'm just trying to feel... I'm just trying to feel slightly less horrible <laughs> well, every day about I hope what happened. We, we and all of your friends mm. and everybody who loves you, we all want to help you with that. So thank you. It's a good mm. thing. Absolutely. So my contact info at the Treatment Advocacy Center is my phone number is 703-294-6884. And my email address is dayk, D-A-Y-K, at treatmentadvocacycenter.org. Yeah, that's Great. a handful. Handful when I'm typing a mouthful when I say it. But again, it's um, day K for my last name, Kathy, my first initial K at treatmentadvocacycenter.org. And phone number again is 
800-242-6884. I work out of my home office in Sacramento County, California, but I have a Virginia phone number. So don't you like technology? Yes. And we will put that in the show notes um, as well as if you would send me a, uh, you you do keep some office hours or some hours of preferred contact. We want to honor your sleep schedule. So <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. My, my typical hours are 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, West Coast time, Pacific West time. Coast time. But I have to tell you, I don't really always hold to those hours. Lately, yeah. we've had like a waterfall of contacts from family members. Last night, it was up until midnight, sending out emails to try to help people. I take wow. the phone calls during the day and then emails at night. And it's just... It's amazing. You know, it's, it's like, I'm glad I have my job. I'm glad I can help people, but I wish that there wasn't this need. And right. I wish we had the proper treatment out there and that everyone was respected and treated and helped. And I didn't right. have to do this because there was no issue that help was just right. automatically there. But yeah. Well, well, we wish everyone had a Kathy day (laughs) in their their corner, in their corner. Yes, we do. Thanks so much, Kathy and Laura. And uh, we will be back next time with our second episode in the series of advocacy. We will go to Catherine, right? Catherine Parks. You want to say a little bit about Catherine? Catherine is a treatment. She's a clinical treatment provider. And I met her when my son was in the early psychosis intervention clinic at Johns Hopkins. She didn't treat my son, but we kind of hit it off. And she had literally has spent her entire clinical career, 25 years, treating people with schizophrenia. You can't be too sick for Catherine to take you as a patient and try to understand and help you. And she's truly a gem of a psychologist. I, or I'm sorry, she is a licensed clinical social worker specializing in serious mental illness. So she'll be our guest uh, next time we get together. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Thank you, Kathy. Great to see you again and to, and to have you talk about everything that you do for others. Great to see you, Laura and Tony. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate that. And I feel like I'm getting to know you better, which is yes. great. Having a new friend in this world. Yeah, that's right. Love it. So thank you very much, both of you. Appreciate the time. Thanks Take again. Care.